Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Better Bada Tag Boom. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the S relationship. We'll learn where it forms, why it forms, and how it became such a popular part of girls' literature in the pre-war period. But first, we're going to learn who would make up the upper and middle class of modern Japan after the Meiji Restoration. During the 18th century, the capital of feudal Japan, Edo, reached a milestone of a million citizens, and a lot of those citizens were samurai and lords taking their mandatory stay in the castle. Now, all these lords and samurai had to present themselves in a certain way because samurai were in a class above all the normal citizens, and that meant they needed access to high-quality fabrics, high-quality furniture, goods, means of entertainment. And the people who provided that to the castle towns of Edo and Osaka were the merchants. In contrast to the samurai, merchants were considered one of the lower classes of civilian society, with farmers being the highest class of civilian society as the farmers grew the rice which provided the economy of feudal Japan. The merchants and the farmers, some of whom would become landlords, were taught in the ways of commerce and trade that samurai were not. Their education was seen as below the samurai, and samurai were taught in the ways of Confucian philosophy, military strategy, swordsmanship. Eventually, throughout the 1800s, the merchants and these rural landlords were gaining more and more political and monetary power within the local towns and even the castle cities. And this starts to create a conflict between the traditional elite of the samurai and this new rising elite of landlords and merchants. As this new elite were educated in ways the samurai were not, the samurai were feeling threatened by what they viewed as citizens taking too much power. In 1868, we have the Meiji Restoration, which saw the end of the shogun ruling Japan and the reinstatement of the emperor. And also, through the Meiji Restoration, we see Japan make huge strides into becoming a modern, capitalist society. And that meant they were modernizing agrarian technology, they were industrializing, as they wanted to compete with all these Western countries that forced them to open up trade during the 1840s and 1850s. And in this new capitalist society of a modern Japan, we see the samurai become the bureaucrats, and these landlords and merchants become the upper and middle class of this new Japan. By 1872, three years of primary education was mandatory for boys and girls, but in 1872, we also only have one school in Tokyo offering secondary education to girls. Because of this, we see a lot of the new upper and middle class families have to send their daughters to boys' schools. And in order to go to the boys' school, they have to wear these boys' uniforms, and they also cut their hair short to fit into the environment. It was perceived as such an attack on Japanese values that in 1883, female students were banned from wearing men's clothing. Another reason there is growing backlash in the late 1800s against girls' education was that many girls' schools that were starting to open in the 1880s, 1870s, were run by American Christian missionaries. And a lot of parents and people were fearing that these American teachers who were going to teach their Japanese daughters the concept of individualism and make them lose touch with traditional Japanese values. 
So we start to see people pulling their daughters from these missionary schools and have private tutorships. But these private tutors weren't teaching what we would consider a real education. They were just teaching girls how to become proper women. And a phrase that will become used a lot during this era is good wives and wise mothers. So right before the turn of the century in 1899, the government passes the Girls High School Law. And this sets a national curriculum for all secondary schooling for girls. Girls schools were now supposed to be five years of education between the ages of 13 and 18, and they would provide a pro-state education as during the Taisho era, Japan will become militarized and start colonizing countries in East Asia and the Pacific. And it would also use Confucian values and philosophy to instill proper femininity in girls. So by 1915, there are now 143 all-girls schools, and now there is a positive reputation with girls' schools, and it is seen that their students are becoming sophisticated, and that because it is a single-sex learning environment, the girls are saying chess. As a part of samurai society, women were not supposed to take part in premarital sex. And after the major restoration, because the samurai were the members of the government and the major movers of the news Japan, the society meant for the mass population was crafted in the image of the samurai culture that the minority of the population lived in during the feudal era. Another key thing that these missionary schools and the missionaries themselves were bringing to Japan was this concept of spiritual love, which would be called Ren-ai. In Japanese. In feudal era, we had concepts that are literally translated as lust and human connection. Lust was seen as a thing that men partook in. Common heterosexual stories during feudal Japan would be that of samurai having relationships with prostitutes and the geisha. But if women participated in sexual relationships with men, they would almost always be punished in some way in these stories. Because, again, samurai society said that women needed to be chaste. But writer Kitsumura Tokoku for the magazine Jokaku Zashi said, quote, Love is the secret key to humanity. This concept of spiritual love was also brought over through European novels. And we see writers in the early 20th century adopt this concept of a spiritual love a connection between men and women not rooted in lust, but more in an intellectual connection between individuals. And because of this rising popularity of this new idea of love, this also helps bring more people to the idea that, yes, women should be educated because women need to meet the intellectual level of men in order to have a healthy relationship. Many of the writers of the early 20th century in Japan that were proponents of spiritual love were very against the what was considered old ways of feudal Japan, the ways of ninjo and iro, of human connection and lust. They saw lust as something that would dirty the mind and would ruin any attempt at a spiritual love relationship between a man and a woman. Books like Ukigumo and Yobu no Uguisu were very strong proponents of this new concept of spiritual love, and they very much derailed Iro and Ninjo as the ways of old feudal Japan. Many of the characters in these two novels 
felt that the flirtation and the promiscuity rooted in the feudal ways of Iro were dirty and weren't compatible with a modern Japan. So as this idea of spiritual love is becoming more and more popular in heterosexual novels, we see writers and creators take this concept of spiritual love and adapt it into the friendships that would be formed in these girls' schools. It was seen that having heterosexual relationships in girls' literature would be too distasteful or possibly stressful for these young girls because heterosexual relationships then bring up the issues of marriage, pregnancy, all these other factors that pressure women in a heteronormative society, whereas books focused on friendship can actually focus on the mechanizations of the relationship between two people without all these outside factors that can muddy up a relationship. Now, a key thing to keep in mind about the S relationship was that homosexual acts were not taboo in feudal Japan because the homosexual identity as we know it in contemporary society in the West was not in Japan at the time. And during the early 20th century, the homosexual identity from Western philosophy was coming into Japan. But again, it wasn't truly taking the effect as it was in the West that homosexual acts equates a homosexual identity and what a homosexual identity is. We don't see that belief even up through the 20s and 30s in Japan. So the S relationship, as easy as it would be from an outside viewpoint in a contemporary Western country like in America or in Britain, it's easy to try and declare S relationships as gay when they weren't. And this isn't to say that there were no homosexual feelings or attachments in S relationships. This is to say that what we call homosexual was not what they were calling homosexual in pre-war Japan. If men and women who were unmarried were seen talking, conversing with each other, or hanging around the same space, that meant that there was probably trouble coming about. That meant that the woman was probably participating in unsavory acts. So many parts of a person's life before marriage in Japan was kept to a homosocial environment. There was no seen reason for you to be interacting with someone of the opposite gender and the opposite sex. In fact, during feudal and pre-war Japan, it was an actual taboo if you were committing sexual acts outside of your class cross-class relationships were a taboo. That's why even after women were banned from the kabuki stage during feudal Japan, there was still a stigma against kabuki actors because it was feared that kabuki actors were now taking up prostitution and attracting samurai clients. So to summarize all that we've learned so far, merchants and samurai became the upper and middle class of this new Japan. During this era, if you were a young unmarried person, it was seen as taboo for you to hang out with anyone of the opposite sex, and that meant boys and girls were growing up in homosocial environments with just people of their same gender. So in all girls schools, we see the concept of a strong friendship become romanticized because this is seen as a way of girls to learn the ways of a spiritual love, of an intellectual connection between two people, in a safe environment without any of the dangers of interacting with boys 
Many professionals at the time saw S relationships as a normal part of an adolescent girl's development, and many saw them as practice runs for heterosexual relationships that students would encounter after graduation in the form of courtship. The main reason that a sexologist and medical professionals at the time would see something wrong with a relationship between two girls were if the relationship took on a heterogender appearance, meaning you had a feminine woman interacting with a woman who took on a masculine appearance and masculine form of speech. That was seen as a taboo and that was seen as immoral. But if it was kept between two feminine girls who had the same ideals, the same femininity, it was seen as normal and it was often encouraged because, as mentioned earlier, it was teaching girls how to have an intellectual-based spiritual connection with another person in the safety of a same-sex environment. So while the discourse of spiritual love in heterosexual novels were targeted towards adults and did feature physical relationships, the discourse about spiritual love for girls was focused on just the friendships between students in these all-girls schools, and it became a very popular genre in girls' literature in the pre-war era. And one of the popular books for that was Ultime Nominato. Ultime Nominato has a story that was seen as your prototypical S relationship. You had an underclassman coming to this school not knowing what an S relationship was. Someone, whether it was a teacher or another upperclassman, would explain to her what an S relationship was and an upperclassman would send her a letter expressing the desire to form this exclusive relationship with her. And the conflict would usually be in the form of a love triangle between the underclassmen and two upperclassmen trying to become her one friend in this S relationship. Because S relationship was seen as a model for a normal heterosexual relationship, it was between just two people. You could have friend groups, but an S relationship was only between you and one other girl. That was it. Another goal seen with the S relationship was that because the dynamic would usually be between an underclassman and upperclassman would be that the two girls through this connection could help each other become a better self or a better version of themselves. This also meant that in order to become a better version of yourself, you would adopt the same ideas, the same concept of femininity, the same desire to become a good wife and a wise mother, and this sameness, which will become a common theme throughout this project, could also be interpreted as a way to assimilate others into proper Japanese culture. During the 20th century, as I mentioned earlier, Japan is militarizing, and it is now expanding and colonizing other countries in East Asia and the Pacific. And the concept of sameness that is seen in these S-relationship stories that are being published in these girl magazines are now being sent off to these new colonies. Later, before the war, we see these popular girls' magazines like Shoujo no Tomo see publication runs in Korea and Taiwan as a way to spread this ideal Japanese-ness and to show the young people in these colonies the quote-unquote proper way to be and how to assimilate to 
Japanese culture. This idea of sameness also helped instill the idea that Japanese culture is the good culture and that while we can, we meaning Japan, that we can take parts of Western society and all these new countries that are being absorbed into the Japanese empire, the Japanese ideal is the right one and that this is the image that we need to take on. So you will see in the art of girls' literature, a lot of the girls literally look the same. Many are dressed in kimono and in new Western clothing, but their faces, their poses are all the same. This sameness is an integral part of the visual aesthetic of girls' literature, and it will also become integral in the visual aesthetic of shoujo manga that we see crop up in the post-war era, especially in the 70s. So to bring a short summary of what I've said so far, the merchants, the samurai became the upper and middle class. They start seeing daughters off the school, but the initial wave of girl students are seen as masculine. And there's a rising backlash against girls' education. We have the girls' high school of 1899 set a strict curriculum that's pro-Japanese state, pro-femininity. Because girls are now going to these same-sex schools, we start to see this creation of a specific culture that is just among the girls. And because, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, this boom of publications of magazines and books, there are now magazines being targeted specifically to these girl students. And that sees the birth of what will become known as girls' culture. Many of these magazines print stories that have themes of S relationships that deal with how to have an intellectual connection with other people, with another girl. And this also helps promote the idea of spiritual love that is seen as a proper way to have a relationship with a man once these students graduate and become of age. An important thing to take note of is that the S relationship is not inherently homosexual because homosexual acts were common in feudal Japan. It's not a subversion of this heterosexual society. A very common pitfall for a lot of, especially Westerners from Christian countries in contemporary times, looking back on feudal Japan and pre-war Japan is to almost blindly declare all of these instances of homosexual sex or close physical relationship as gay, as homosexual, despite the fact that the homosexual identity and the politics around that identity were not a part of Japanese society during these times. And it is a wrong way to look at these phenomenon, but you have so many academics and anthropologists examining these parts of Japanese society and declaring that there must be a subversion of heteronormativity in these instances when there isn't. Like the Shinsengumi, which were the special police in late feudal Japan, there was homosexual sex among the men, but it was normal. That was not a crazy thing. As I mentioned before, cross-class relationships were the taboo of Japan. If you were a samurai and you had a relationship, say, with a kabuki actor, that was the taboo because you were reaching so low beneath you that you were dirtying yourself. It was not the fact that a man was having sex with a man. It was the fact that you, as a member of this high society, have now dirtied yourself interacting with such a low person. Now, one of the first books that I read for this research was Takarazuka by Jennifer Robinson. 
she, when reading that book and looking back on it now, seeing the criticisms that that book received, there is a certain air of expertise that is in the author's voice that is bothersome. And she has what I think she has nerve to criticize a documentary on the Takarazuka Review called Dream Girls by saying that the directors had such an intent to see a homosexual undertone in the Takarazuka Review that they only focus on that when she herself focused on the homosexual undertones of Takarazuka Review and she focused on the early criticisms of the review that having women dress as men would cause women to seek unnatural relationships with masculine women. And many Japanese academics criticized Jennifer Robinson's work because she did not view the S relationship and the Takarazuka review in what they deemed was the proper context. The context that this homosocial environment was common in many parts of Japanese society and having an all-female theater group was seen as a natural conclusion Another Western academic, Sandra Buckley, responded to the criticism to Robson's work in 2001's The Encyclopedia of Contemporary Japanese Culture. In the following quote I've taken from Deborah Shimoon's book, Passionate Friendship, quote, There has been a strong reaction from Japanese critics to some Western feminist research, meaning Robinson, that is seen in Japan to focus too much on the issue of homosexuality and the erotic tensions of the Takarazuka. It can be said that this amounts to an acceptance or even an intellectual investment by these critics in the Takarazuka's self-perpetuating myth of sexual innocence. The theater has achieved such massive popularity that it has almost become sacrosanct and beyond criticism, and yet there seems to be much still to be gained from a critical engagement with the Takarazuka on terms other than its own self-defined image." End quote. Now, I'm in the middle of reading my second book on the Takarazuka Review, Gender Gymnastics, and the author of that book, Lonise Dickland, before page five, she directly calls out Jennifer Robson's work as focusing on homoerotic undertones, and she also criticized her translation work as focusing on homoeroticism and translating it in a way to make it seem as though there are a lot of homosexual undertones to these fan letters. And like I said, Jennifer Robinson has nerve to criticize the directors of this documentary, Dreamgirls. Fun fact, those two directors of Dreamgirls also directed the wrestling documentary, Gaya Girls. But to say that these two women were focusing so much on the homoerotic undertones, when you yourself had focused on these homoerotic undertones in such an authoritative way that if you were to only read Takarazuka, you would think, of course, this is why this happens. This is why people are fans of this theater company. When there is just an actual cultural reason as to why this businessman created an all-female theater group and this same guy tried twice to integrate it into a mixed theater group. In both times, he met heavy drawback from both the actresses, their parents, and the fans saying, no, don't do this. We need to keep this all girls. And the fact that Sandra Buckley then comes in years later to say that these Japanese critics are just following the word of mouth of the Takarazuka Review that, oh, these are chast girls, they would never think of sex, they don't participate in relationships. No, I think that these Japanese critics are right in being critical of these foreigners coming in, examining a major part of Japanese pop culture and declaring it as something as it's not. 
Now, yes, you can read homosexual subtext in Takaruzuka plays, but to just ignore these people criticizing your work and just declaring it as, oh, well, they're just such fans of Takaruzuka, they just can't see what I can see, it's frustrating. Like, I can't even form proper sentences right now because it's just plain frustrating. While so many of them are just ignoring the voices of people from that culture who have a better understanding of why these phenomena happen than some white person living in New York City or this white professor working at some Southern California college. And then another white academic, because the two people I've already mentioned are white women, and this man, James Walker, who supposedly researched the phenomenon of boys' love and girls' manga, he said this about a hugely popular shoujo manga of the time, The Heart of Thomas, quote, Hagio has explained in interviews that she abandoned the lesbian virgin because she found her girl-girl romance plot disgusting and the idea of a kiss scene between girls to be as gooey as fermented soybeans. For Hagio, drawing the world of the girls' school is too restrictive, as if she were bound by a witch's spell, whereas drawing the unknown world of the boys' school is far more interesting and offers a different sense of liberation. The lesbian narrative was graphically silenced because Hagio's and perhaps her readers' inability to confront or admit their own lesbian desire directly. And either way, the fact remains that Hagio had lesbian desire in mind when she created the narrative." End quote. That quote was from Passionate Friendship by Deborah Shamoon, and she is critical of Welker's quote and says that the decision to not make it a girl's school and how Hagio describes the idea of girls kissing as sticky as natto may be because by the time The Heart of Thomas is published in the early 70s, Esther's relationships are now antiquated. And as World War II gets further and further away, the popular themes before that time are seen as old school or old fashioned. And it's also just the sense that this academic person, James Walker, that he can declare that Hagio had lesbian intent but repressed it and made an all-boys school completely ignores just so many factors that can come into play in a creator deciding to make something happen in an all-boys school versus an all-girls school. The Heart of Thomas is Hagio's interpretation of the German novel Damien. Damien takes place in Germany, so one could say Hagio made the decision to make her novel take place in Germany because it is closer to the book that she took inspiration from. The Heart of Thomas takes place at an all-boys German school, much like Damien. It also seemingly ignores the fact that, like many cultures, women are not seen as sexual. Women are actively discouraged from being sexual and taking part in sexual acts. The reason why male shipping is so popular in fandoms is because it's seen as a safe way to explore emotional bonds and sex between men and the exploration of the male body. It's seen as a safe way to do that because if it was heterosexual, then as I mentioned earlier, you had to deal with things like pregnancy, marriage, all the pitfalls that can come with a heterosexual relationship, power dynamics that you wouldn't get in a homosexual male love story. And that's why male shipping is so popular in fandoms. It's not because all these women have repressed lesbian desires. There's so many factors as to why this happens and it just feels like so many white Western academics just love to ignore the cultures and the context of foreign countries. 
and it needs to be stopped. It is annoying having to read through an entire book and then reading subsequent quotes from all these so-called experts, people being paid to be experts of Japanese popular culture and approach with such an air of superiority and to just almost ignore the criticisms that they face from different people is super annoying. And it's just, it doesn't look good on you. Like anyone from outside your world reading this, it makes you kind of look like an asshole. Pardon the language, but it just does. To end this episode on a more positive note, I want to take time to extend great thanks to all the listeners and the readers of this project. When I started my research last year, I couldn't imagine so many people reading and listening to what I had to say and write about the topic of why did Joshi Wrestling become so popular in the 70s and 80s, and now why is it not so popular? So again, thank you to all the listeners, to all the positive feedback, the recommendations, the support from friends. I just want to say thank you, and hopefully this project lives up to your expectations. And hopefully you can take away some knowledge from whatever I am trying to express 